And for the rest of us, let's turn to Titus chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 4. Titus chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 4. Just a, uh, a mention, um, the seminar for ministering to our Islamic neighbors, um, really a good opportunity for us to engage in learning more uh, about how we can reach out to a mission field that God has moved right here in our midst. So would uh, really encourage you to consider that. There is a sign-up sheet. We have uh, three little bins right outside the door here to my left. And right out there, there are three bins where there are clipboards, and you can sign up on that if you are so inclined. So please keep that in mind. We're going to start our study in the book of Titus this morning. And as we come to the study of this very important New Testament book, we're continuing a series on the pastoral epistles, and uh, this will be our third book in that series. Now, each one of the pastoral epistles has had a theme, and here in Titus, that is no different, where the last book we studied, 2 Timothy, had the theme of faithfulness. Here in the book of Titus, the theme that really jumps out at us is a theme about the importance of spiritual growth. And we're going to see that it's by the grace of God and by our dependence on Him that we grow in godliness. Brooke Megan Greenberg was a young woman, 16 years old, who, if you were to look at her, you would think was about nine months old. She had a rare disease that caused her body not to grow, and it was tragic for her family. She died at only 20 years of age, but her body was so small, she was 30 inches long and 16 pounds at the time of her death at 20 years old. We look at that and we find the tragedy in a person not growing as they should. And as I thought about that story, I thought about many Christians who, if we were to appear at our spiritual age, I wonder what we would look like. God wants believers to grow. Just as it's abnormal for a person not to grow physically, It's abnormal for us not to grow spiritually. And we need to understand the importance of that spiritual growth. It's something that God wants us to experience. So what we're going to do as we start looking into the book of Titus, we're going to see some keys to spiritual growth. And we're going to see that we are to live as believers for the God who saved us. Now we begin with this first verse. And we're going to see Paul communicate to us the importance of pursuing godly living as believers. And one of the goals that Paul writes at the onset of this particular book of the Bible is his goal, what he wants to cover throughout the pages of this very short letter. 
He begins by identifying himself, but then he very quickly moves into the idea that we are to grow in our faith as God's elect and knowledge, that as we grow in our faith and our knowledge, it will in turn produce godliness. And we're going to see what that means as we look into this first verse. Now notice Paul identifies himself, and he says, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. As Paul writes to Titus, let me be very quick to say this. Paul did not need to identify himself to Titus. As he sends this letter, it's with the intention of the letter being read by more than Titus, obviously. Would he have had to identify who he was, what he did to Titus, who knew him so well? Titus was a person that Paul had personally mentored. He's not mentioned in the book of Acts, but we do find him mentioned in the book of Galatians and in the book of 1 Corinthians. So we need to understand that Titus had an important connection with the Apostle Paul. He served alongside him. He was called a co-laborer with the Apostle Paul. So as Paul introduces this letter, it's with the intention that this letter be read not only where Titus was stationed at the time, the island of Crete, but also throughout the entire Christian community of the first century. And then it was something that's included in the eternal word of God so that we can learn from the principles shared in this book as well. Now, when Paul identifies himself as a servant of God, we see into the heart of the Apostle Paul. A servant is someone who has the responsibility of carrying out the desires of their master. It's important that we understand that vital role that we should all seek to live and fulfill. The idea of being a servant of God isn't just for professional ministers. All of us have a responsibility to take that same approach to life. Where we look at Jesus, where we look at God the Father, and we see our role as a responsibility in carrying out the desires of the one who is our master, God. Now, we have a loving master. We have one who sacrificed himself for us. So out of gratitude, we serve him. That should be our desire, to live for him, to do what is pleasing to him. And right on the onset of this letter, that's how Paul identifies himself. He was there as one who was under the authority of Jesus Christ. He was coming to this place to serve in a way that would honor him. We should do the same. But notice Paul also identifies himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ. Authority. There is authority between the master and the servant, but there is also authority between the Savior and his apostles. As Paul speaks in this letter, he is not speaking on his own authority. He is speaking as one who was directly commissioned by Jesus Christ to say the things that he's about to say. So when we read the Word of God, when we listen to what God speaks forth in this letter, understand that it's not just a personal letter between Paul the mentor and Titus the mentoree. This is the very Word of God and it communicates powerfully to us the truth of God. 
We need to understand that the Holy Spirit inspired the very words of this letter. And so it carries weight. It shares with us what we should be doing. Now look at what else we find in this first verse. Paul is a servant of God. He is an apostle of Jesus Christ. And part of his ministry as an apostle was to establish the church. To see that the church would become something that functioned according to the will of God. So we're going to see a lot of insight as we go through Titus into how God wants his church to operate. And we need to take the counsel and the teaching of the word of God and we need to implement that. We need to live it out. So let's look at what he says here. First, God wants people to grow in their faith. Paul says, for the faith of God's elect and the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. The faith of God's elect. Now what is Paul communicating by that? First of all, in order to understand this term, we have to look at elect. What does the scripture mean when it says God's elect? The word elect very simply means chosen. And it's a word that we should embrace, that we should buy into, that we should understand because it's used often in Scripture as a description of God's people. In the Old Testament, the term was used of Israel, which was God's elect. They were His people. In the New Testament, it refers to all true believers, those who have placed their personal faith in Jesus Christ. They are the people of God. Now, unfortunately, there is a great deal of controversy as theologians grapple with the idea of what it means to be elect. You have differing ends of the spectrum, some who want to disavow it, some who want to embrace it to the exclusion of other important doctrines. And really what we have to do as we look at this term elect is see it for what the Scripture says. It means that God has chosen us by his grace. That's the idea. That's what elect means. And we need to see it in a balanced way with the rest of Scripture. The term election emphasizes the sovereignty of God, the choice of God. But we find other passages of Scripture that also emphasize man's choice and the importance in us responding to the gospel. To have a pure picture of doctrinal truth, we have to look at all of the Scripture and not isolate on a precious few words that lend us toward following what we want to go as far as a direction theologically. So here, Paul is making a simple statement. Look, I want to see the people of God, the elect, grow in their faith. That's the idea. Faith is such an important part of our lives. It brings us into a relationship with God. Faith is the response to the gospel message. It is looking at what God freely offers and then placing our trust in what God says. It brings us to the place of entering a relationship of forgiveness and coming into a place to where we experience all of the promise of God. Faith is essential 
as God's people. And it has been from Old Testament to New Testament, the righteous live by faith. So what we as believers need to do is understand this. Our faith is essential. Not only as we enter into a relationship with God the Father, but as we progress through our Christian life, faith should be operative throughout. I should be trusting God and what he says in every aspect of my life. So think about what this means. When I look at something and it seems to me that I would be better off to do what I think than what God says, faith sets aside what I think and trusts what God says. If I'm going to be a person of faith, growing in that faith, then I have to exercise that faith. I have to unreservedly trust what God says. And so we're going to see that as we go through the book of Titus, the importance of developing faith in that way. But you know, we not only grow in our faith, we're to grow in our knowledge of the truth. How do I know what to put my faith in unless God reveals to me what I should trust? You know what I find as people come together and pool their ignorance? We live in a very confused world because that is basically how people come to decisions. They look and what they feel in the moment, what they think in the moment is the way it ought to be. And as a result, they're all over the place. As believers, we have a knowledge base that is to be our guide for life. We put our faith in the truth of God, and this builds our knowledge. And understand, growing in our knowledge of Scripture is not purely for the sake of knowledge, so that I can go and quote more verses than anyone else, or say I have scriptural authority on some idea that popped into my head, and then I looked in Scripture and found the place where it was supported. It's for the sake of guiding me, directing me, leading me in what God would have me do. So as we approach Scripture, we need to approach it humbly. We need to have ears that are open to what God says. But then not just accumulate that knowledge, but have it affect our lives in a real and practical way. And that's what Paul goes on to say. He's there to influence the faith and the knowledge of the elect. And what does it lead to? It leads to godliness. Now, question. What does the Bible mean when it talks about godliness? The idea of godliness is this. It is the practical fleshing out of what God has said. It's coming to the place to where I not only say I'm going to trust in what God says, I'm going to grow in what I understand God says, but godliness means I'm living out what I trust and what God has revealed. Godliness is behavioral and attitudinal. In other words, I'm going to show 
godliness as I grow in my faith and knowledge. Faith and knowledge should always lead to a behavioral and attitudinal change. And if it doesn't, then I have a problem. I think as believers, it's so important that we understand this is our guide to life, the Word of God. We need to listen more to what the Spirit of God says through His Word than to the opinions and ideas of a culture that is very confused. And we find it so easy to become engaged in the thought processes of this culture. This culture tries to shape and mold our thinking in a different direction. God has laid it out for us in the Scripture. And this is what God would have us do. Learn the Scripture, grow in it. It leads to godly living. Then look at what else Paul says as we go through this first chapter. Now at the second verse, we see the promise of eternal life, and that's an anchor for our souls. Look at verse 2. A faith and knowledge resting on the hope of eternal life. I love the way this is framed. Listen, our faith and our knowledge lead us toward godliness, but it has a foundation that is rock solid. It rests on the hope of eternal life. Now, what is hope? Many would see hope as quite simply the idea that we look at something and wishful thinking kicks in, and when we look at that and we say the impossible will suddenly become possible because I just kind of wish it would, that's how many people view hope. You could have looked at the weather yesterday and say, gee, I hope it doesn't snow, you know? Didn't cooperate, right? You had no evidence for saying that hope. It was just a wish, a desire that was on your part that you somehow were counting on coming true, but not really counting on it because you've been disappointed before in April in Chicagoland, right? Hope isn't that in Scripture. Hope is a confident expectation, not because of wishful thinking, but because God says so. You see, wishful thinking is very much a subjective feeling. It's whatever I feel in the moment. If I'm having a great day, then hope springs eternal. If I'm having a lousy day, then I'm looking and I'm saying, life stinks. Nothing's ever going to work out, right? Our emotions can carry us into places that we don't want to go. But a hope that is based on objective truth, the truth of God, is a hope that our faith and our knowledge can rest on. Not because I feel it, but because God said it. And that's a huge difference. God wants us to hope in what he says. When Paul says that our faith and knowledge rest on the hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time. He's talking about real objective hope here, isn't he? 
He's talking about something that lasts because it's based on the integrity and, and the character of God. Not on what I might suppose, but on who God is. Isn't it great to know that our eternal life is based on the promise of God? Not somebody theorizing a bunch of ideas and spewing them out, but God himself promising us this. God in the person of Jesus Christ promised eternal life to those who would believe. Crystal clear, understandable. And when God makes that promise, it's an anchor for our soul. I love what the writer of Hebrews said. Men swear by someone greater than themselves, and the oath confirms what is said and puts an end to all arguments. Because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised, he confirmed it with an oath. God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope offered to us may be greatly encouraged. Now, I love this 19th verse. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. Isn't that beautiful? That's our hope. That's the hope that God gives you and me. And we are to have faith in that hope. Again, not because we feel it, but because God has said it. And it's impossible for God to lie. We move on in the text. And as we come to the next part of Paul's letter to Titus, we find that Paul took seriously the responsibility of proclaiming this hope to others. He wanted to proclaim the life-changing truth of salvation. And notice what he says in the third verse. At his appointed season, he brought his word to light through the preaching entrusted to me by the command of God our Savior. Now, there's a lot of important thoughts that are encapsulated in this verse. First of all, God had an appointed time for this message of salvation to come out. We are still in that time, by the way. We are still sharing the mystery of God, that our salvation is offered freely by the God who saves and we have the responsibility of sharing that truth with other people. So let's look carefully at what's being shared in this verse. Paul viewed himself as sharing the word of light. In other words, the word that brings truth into darkness. And he said that the preaching of this message was entrusted to him by the command of God our Savior. Now consider what is being shared here. Paul viewed himself as one entrusted with the gospel. You know what it means to entrust something to someone? To entrust something to someone means that you are giving it over to them for them to do what you want them to do with it. 
It's not that you give it to them and say, hey, go do whatever you want. I don't want it anymore. I'm putting it here for you to do something with it. I'm entrusting it to you because it's mine, but I'm putting it in your hands for management and safekeeping. That's the idea of entrusting something. We have all been entrusted with a gospel message, not so we will sit on it and say, hey, here's the gospel message. Isn't it really great? I'm going to keep this to myself, and I'm going to just kind of hang on to it. The idea of God entrusting the gospel message to Paul and then by extension entrusting that message to us is that we will do with the gospel message what God intends us to do with it. And what does God intend us to do with it? To share it with others. It's not for our own edification, although it edifies and builds us up. It's for the evangelization of those who need to hear its message. Paul viewed this with a great deal of responsibility. To the Corinthians, he said this, We are therefore Christ's ambassadors. As though God were making his appeal through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's the gospel message that God entrusted to Paul, but also that is the gospel message that he has entrusted to us. We have the responsibility of bringing light to people. And I love the way Paul frames this because he says it was the preaching of this that was entrusted to him. Now, a few weeks ago when TJ shared with us on a Sunday morning He talked about the meaning of this word preached. It's used here again in this text. You know what it means? It means to herald something. Now, what does it mean to herald something? That's an old term, so let's think about it. Before Twitter and Facebook and television and radio and Internet, how did information get out? In each town, there was a herald. And that's H-E-R-A-L-D, not H-A-R-O-L-D. And this herald had the responsibility of going out and proclaiming important announcements for the village. Sometimes they would be life and death. The enemies are attacking. We're closing the gates. It was vital that people listened to what was being shared so that, in many instances, they could be saved from disaster. This is the gospel message that we have. We are heralds of that message. We speak it forth. It's been entrusted to us, and it's been entrusted to us for a purpose, and that is to share it with others. So understand this. All of you have a village that you're a part of, a sphere of influence where there are people that you rub shoulders with that you can be a herald to. You've built contexts of relationships. You've gained trust in that little community of friends and family and neighbors 
And you can share with them the truth of the gospel. And we're responsible to do so. Paul says this to the Romans. How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone heralding to them? And how can they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Understand this. All of us have been sent. Some would read this passage and say, well, I don't need to preach the good news because God never sent me. Yes, he did. God has sent you to the community that you are a part of, and God wants you to share within that community the truth of the gospel. As we come to the last part of this passage, though, something leaped out at me as I was looking at this, and it's the passion of God for people to be saved. Notice Paul says in this third verse that he was bringing the word of light that was entrusted to him. And look at who it's entrusted by. By the command of God, our what? Savior. God has the heart of a Savior. God does not delight in people being separated from him for an eternity. In fact, we know this about God because what he reveals in his word. Just a couple of examples. 2 Peter 3.9, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Pretty clear, isn't it, that God has a passionate heart for the lost. God desires to see people saved. He is God the Savior. Earlier in our study in the pastoral epistles, it says this is good and pleases God our Savior. Now here we see Paul use this term, God our Savior, once again. And look at what it says, who wants all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. That's God's heart. That's God's passion. So the scripture is crystal clear that God is our Savior. That he offers salvation to those who will listen and respond. But then look at the fourth verse. And in the fourth verse it goes on to say, To Titus, my son, in our common faith. So Paul's finally getting to who the letter's to. But then look at what he says to him. Grace and peace from God, the Father and Christ Jesus, our what? Our Savior. So again, God the Father, God the Son have saving hearts. That's their passion. That's their desire. The salvation that God offers comes through the grace that Paul mentions in his greeting to Titus and to all who would read. And what we're going to see is this, that the unmerited favor, that's what grace means, 
the unmerited favor of God, brings us to salvation, but then is operative after salvation to bring us into godliness. And it's brought out in a couple of passages. Look right across the page, Titus chapter 2, verse 11. Look at what he says here. The grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, and it teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Do you catch that? The grace of God leads us into salvation, that is, deliverance from our sin. But once we have received Christ as our Savior, it leads us into godliness as well. In other words, practically living out what it means to be like God. This is God's desire for us. Look at chapter 3, verses 4 through 7. But when the kindness and love of God, our Savior, you get that theme that's repeated? When the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of righteous things we have done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior. So these are themes that we're going to see as we go through Titus. The grace of God that changes us and transforms us into godly people. That's my desire for our church body, that we will experience in greater measure a growth in our faith, in our knowledge, and in our practical Christian living. And we do this not by our own strength, but by the grace of our Savior who transforms us. As we yield to God, we grow in godliness. That's going to be our theme. I look forward to going through the book of Titus with you. So many wonderful truths revealed in the pages of this letter. I'm excited about the next few weeks as we'll be going through this. would ask you to, after each sermon, ask yourselves, am I growing and what God has freely provided? Am I living out the godliness, the things that God reveals will measure whether or not I'm living as God intends? Am I growing in these things? As you do, you will see God open your heart and open your eyes to things that maybe you need to turn over to him that you've been hanging on a little tightly to but need to be surrendered in order to grow in that godliness. That's my prayer. That's my hope for myself and for this church body. Let's pray. Gracious God, thank you for this text. Thank you for what you have given us so freely by your grace. We recognize that left to ourselves, we do not have the strength or the inclination to change. But Lord, through your promise and your truth, you change us. 
How we thank you for the promise of eternal life that is a promise that we can count on, that our hope rests on. Help us to rest in that hope as well. In Jesus' name, amen.